Thanks for downloading this episode of Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth. Research that takes place here has an impact on the organizations, industries, institutions, and technologies that we're using in everyday life. And it's helping us work towards solving some of our biggest challenges. And one challenge that many of us have unfortunately faced is fraud. It's now the UK's most commonly experienced crime. It can take many forms and it's getting harder to spot as advances in technology are abused. There's a huge amount of information out there that we reveal to organisations and which unfortunately some don't look after us as well as they should and that then finds its way into the public domain. So what can research do to help stop criminals in their tracks and prevent the nation losing billions of pounds every year? If you look at the most accurate measures of fraud in the Crime Survey for England and Wales in this country, fraud and cybercrime have now overtaken traditional crime as the most popular crime. That illustrates the size of the problem. There have been varying estimates of the cost of fraud to society. The last time we did that, it was £190 billion just to the UK alone. That is obviously a significant sum of money. Multiply that globally, it would be trillions of pounds, US dollars, whatever you want to denominate it in. Today, we're speaking with Professor Mark Button, Director for the University's Centre for Counter-Fraud Studies, to find out what we can all do to protect ourselves and how policing and policy is fighting back against the fraudsters. The Centre for Counter-Fraud Studies is based within the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice here at Portsmouth. Mark's particular interest in fraud was born out of his background in private policing. I soon began to realise that there was a substantial number of other organisations other than these state bodies engaged in looking at fraud, that these state bodies also did so largely without the police. You know, some you know, particular occasions where they do work with the police, but, you know, significant amounts of fraud investigation. So this all really fascinated me and it made me realise that fraud is largely policed by what I would describe as hybrid and private policing bodies. Fraud isn't just one kind of crime, but many. This means that policing it can often be a complex matter. Frauds are a very wide range of different types of crimes. They range from scams you get over the telephone, which may be someone impersonating a bank security department or, a, or the police trying to trick you into revealing sensitive personal information, which again, they can then use to defraud you. It could range to employees within organisations fitting their travel expenses through to social security fraud by people claiming benefits. It is a very wide range of different types of crimes that fall within fraud, all united by some kind of deception to cause a gain or some kind of loss. The most common scams today are usually some kind of impersonation scam using modern technology. One I've received recently, for instance, you, you get a text saying you've got a parcel and you've got to pay a small charge to get hold of that parcel. Obviously, you then click on that link, you give away your personal information, your banking details, and it's a scam. It's not the real parcel company. That is incredibly popular these days. Email scams, where people do similar kinds of things. You know, you get fake websites or people using existing websites to sell fake goods or 
counterfeit goods and you're expecting genuine goods. So these are all the kind of very common types of frauds that we all experience on a kind of day-to-day -day basis. The general description would be a crime based upon deception which seeks to cause a gain or a loss to an individual or an organisation. If fraud is a deception that causes a loss, that means its victims are as diverse as the crime, from individuals to multinational companies and everything in between. It's even used on the international scale to destabilise nations in economic warfare. Actually, Rusi, a respected military think tank, recently conducted a report where they said fraud was one of the number one security threats to the UK. So I think that kind of illustrates itself, you know, how significant it has become as an issue for that wider community. One of Mark's earliest assignments was an investigation with the National Fraud Authority to study the impact of fraud on individual victims. There was a, a perception, I think, among many in the kind of broader criminal justice world that fraud was a, a lesser crime. It didn't always affect individuals. There was no physical harm. And what we found was that that was completely wrong. You had people suffering such bad experiences as a result of fraud victimization that they were committing suicide or attempting to commit suicide, serious health problems, serious changes to their behavior, some with quite devastating financial consequences. One individual, he was a businessman, he was defrauded and almost went bankrupt. As a result of the fraud, he couldn't pay some of his suppliers, so then his suppliers were hassling him and hassling his family. He almost came to the brink of suicide because of this. He did eventually manage to get through it, but that was one example. In that particular case, it was one of his employees that had defrauded him, someone he trusted, you know, had um, been given responsibilities and then they had siphoned off significant sums of what was a small business's money. You know, he had built up a, a substantial business in a niche area and that was, you know, on the line as a result of this fraud with a small number of employees that may lose their jobs and in fact some did. I think there's also the fear of fraud, which people don't talk about. And I'm currently doing a project for a charity that works with older adults. What's been quite striking is there are large numbers of older adults, you know, these are largely over 75s, who are kind of very housebound, whose main window to the world is the telephone, but are being targeted, you know, often on a weekly, sometimes daily basis by fraudsters. They have become incredibly anxious, scared and terrified every time the telephone rings. Just imagine yourself as, you know, a kind of older person with limited social contact and the phone goes and you think it's another person trying to defraud you. That has been, for me, on this, this most recent project, one of the most significant eye-openers because these are largely people who haven't been defrauded. They haven't actually lost any money, but they're sitting at home terrified and no one's really doing much about it. Ever since I did that victims project, I regularly get victims contact me, often seeking help, you know, things that often I can't help them with. I can often refer them to relevant organisations, whatever. But all kinds of incredibly sad stories I've heard over the years, which also kind of give you a, you know, a motivation to try and help to develop solutions to deal with these problems so that there are less of these types of victims. 
In a digital world, we can end up sharing vast amounts of personal information, which sometimes can get into the wrong hands. So what is there in place to keep us safe when we're sharing our data with companies online? Under the GDPR, the, the General Data Protection Regulation, they can be subject to very significant fines. And some companies like British Airways have experienced you know, fines of tens of millions of pounds for, for data breaches. So there is that. And then, of course, individuals, if they do suffer some kind of loss or feelings of um, anxiety, those types of things as a result of a data breach, um, can often sue these organisations. So there are options open to, to individuals. But unfortunately, when you do sign up to lots of these different types of services these days, you are signing away a lot of your data. But that still means they have to protect it. Um, they don't get out of it that easily. Mark explained how fraud is being dealt with by police on a day-to-day -day basis. He welcomes the increased publicity crackdowns have been given in recent press. There are lots of these types of busts that regularly occur by the police where they crack the software of the fraudsters and are able to identify victims and, and offenders. There needs to be much more of that activity. That's just a kind of small part of the overall jigsaw. But, but perhaps the fact that at least they are now publicising it and conducting these kinds of exercises, maybe things are starting to change and, you know, generic police are starting to take it more seriously. Some comfort there, but the vast numbers of text and email scams happening every day suggest that fraudsters are still getting hold of your information. How does this happen when companies are working hard to comply with data protection laws and avoid getting sued? There have been lots of data breaches over the last 10 years or so, and a lot of that information it then finds itself on the dark web where it's traded. So you can go and purchase bulk information of people's names, addresses, telephone numbers, sometimes even their passwords. And that can obviously then be used to kind of perpetrate frauds or to, to simulate some kind of thing, which then leads to the person revealing further information, which they can then be defrauded with. The dark web is, in fact, a much bigger part of the internet, but, which isn't indexed in the same way. So you need the exact address to, to get to it and sometimes specialist software whereas obviously with most websites you you can search and you can you can find them where this is very useful to criminals is that they can trade things on the dark web which are very useful for crime so you can buy drugs and all kinds of other bad things but in terms of fraud there is a lot of data traded where individuals can go in and buy for instance bulk credit card information which they can then use to try and conduct transactions and buy things and conduct a fraud against obviously the ultimate holder of that credit card there are lots of documents and templates that you can buy through the dark web um, we, we did some research a few years ago and we we looked into this and we found things like um fake bank statements, letterheads, all these types of things. And obviously, you know, even these days, these, a lot of these things you can create with the software that's available online, but you can buy these templates and then you could use that to impersonate, you know, a bank or some other organisation to perpetrate a fraud. So there's a lot of that kind of information. And I've also seen training courses that have been held online, you know, on how to commit frauds in the dark web. So there is a huge amount of dark activity, shall we say, taking place in that area. A lot of 
criminals just make money from selling the tools to perpetrate fraud without actually doing the fraud themselves. You know, I would guess if you if you went back 20 years ago, this would have been virtually non-existent, whereas now it is a, you know, a significant area where, where criminals operate and where people can go to find out how to do these things. And the international nature of cybercrime means that enforcing the laws around this isn't that straightforward. I suspect a lot of them aren't based in the UK. And that obviously makes things very challenging for law enforcement um, to, to, to catch these individuals. Unfortunately, it is a very siloed world when it comes to this. There is, there is cooperation, you know, and you have got organisations like Interpol, which do provide the basis for some cooperation between countries. And in the EU, they've got Europol, which has also taken an interest in fraud and, and done some good work. But unfortunately, that is not a significant resource. There is a, a large gap and there are significant challenges to sharing information, jointly working, things from disruption through to obviously the ultimate of trying to catch criminals and bring them to justice. That is incredibly difficult. So there is not a huge amount going on to the scale of what the problem is. So it is an area, I think, that really needs to be improved because obviously the criminals themselves have no problems operating across borders. Perhaps now the, the debate needs to be much more serious about some kind of organisation or at least some organisation that already exists taking on a much bigger role in the, in the fight against fraud. The state is very thin when it comes to the, to the policing of fraud. There's probably a lot more that could be done, particularly by the tech companies, in terms of weeding out fraudulent websites and fraudulent communications. We have you know, legislation going through Parliament trying to, hopefully, with the end of, of putting more responsibilities on those providers to weed those kinds of bad websites and things out. So I think technology has a role to play there. I think there are things like call blocking technology, which can be used for older adults, particularly vulnerable older adults, which can stop a lot of the, the forces just getting through to the older person in, in the first instance. So I think technology does have a significant role to play, but I think there's also a lot of the, the human elements that need to be enhanced and developed. You know, as I mentioned earlier, networks, you know, close friends, family um, are very important for lots of people in discussing scams, you know, things that have come to them, websites they're considering using. Those people who are particularly who are lonely and isolated, that you know, they need access and help to those kinds of networks you know there's a lot of people particularly older people at one end and you know possibly younger people coming through who also need to be educated in you know online safety and the kind of risks of the modern world driving the needs for further funding and international cooperation is the increasing rate of fraud in recent times mark thinks the covid19 pandemic has a lot to answer for Actually, the most common victims are the middle-aged, those in the 40s and 50s. If you look at the ONS crime survey data, young people as well, you know, high and certainly up until a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, the over-65s were a much smaller part of that, that picture. But since the pandemic, it's been growing quite significantly. If you look at the, the most recent stats, still not up there with the, the middle age. But older adults tend to lose a lot more money when they are victimised. So I think that's why it's a, 
much more significant problem for older adults because they may be pensioners with very limited sums of money um, and they lose that and it's you know devastating for their life every demographic has a risk you know we all have, have, have you know different areas where the way we operate in lives we could potentially fall for, for a crime but I think we do need to be particularly concerned about the older adults the fraud rates have, have gone up substantially during the pandemic um, as has computer misuse and computer misuse is largely attempted frauds and that's what's driven the overtaking of traditional crime you know pre-pandemic traditional crime was still bigger than fraud and computer misuse but now computer misuse and fraud are, are a bigger portion of the pie you've got the difficulty of of social interaction you know a significant thing for preventing fraud is you get a text message or an email and you talk to someone and you say what do you think about this and obviously if you're isolated if you haven't got uh, as easy social interaction where you can just say to a friend you know what do you think about this do you think this is a scam that you know obviously is a very useful barrier for us all to protect ourselves if you're in doubt you ask someone so you take that away that creates more opportunities for the forces because you know, they know that people can't check as easily. Those factors have been the kind of driving forces behind it. I think also probably criminals themselves have been more constrained. And I suppose if you're going to rob a bank, it's obviously much more difficult in a lockdown, isn't it? In spite of those stats, Mark says it's important to know that no age group is immune from fraudulent activity and that educating young people on the risks is vital. Have you heard of money mule scams? Money mule scams are another area, you know, so what's, you know, a lot of young people, particularly students who are hard up for money and they get a, suddenly get an opportunity to accept a load of money into your account, which you get paid a fee and often a reasonable fee. But in reality, they're engaging in money laundering, you know, and they, they can have quite significant consequences for them, not least, you know, potential imprisonment. But even if they don't get prosecuted, they often get essentially sanctioned by the banks with their bank accounts closed down for engaging in such activities. So young people certainly are at risk from a wide range of, of different types of frauds and scams. My older son is almost 17 and he was suddenly telling me about the social media influencers talking about cryptocurrency investments where you can make a fortune you know i obviously had this discussion with him and explained it was more than likely a scam and if it wasn't a scam it was probably highly unlikely at this stage in the development of cryptocurrency he was going to make a fortune so social media pushing those kinds of ideas and products and services out there is a, is a big problem i've done some other research in a kind of related area about counterfeit products and how significant social media influences are getting people to buy counterfeit products. At one level, people might think it's fairly, you know, safe and mundane if you're, you know, buying an Armani handbag or something. But a lot of counterfeit products are, are things like vodka. Could you really trust counterfeit vodka? Alcohol, if it's not produced in the right way, can kill you. Makeup, putting makeup on which might have chemicals in that causes a rash or even worse. So there are all these counterfeit products out there that are often being pushed on social media along with lots of other things that people just need to be very careful of 
try and do you know more due diligence about what people are actually pushing in these posts. With social media and online shopping a part of everyday life, there are increasing opportunities for crime too. When buying products online, it's easy to be duped by a fake website. So what does Mark recommend as a first stop for staying safe when shopping digitally? One thing I do, there's a website called Scam Advisor. You can put the web address into Scam Advisor and it gives you a rating of how good that website is in terms of likelihood of, of being a, you know, a scam website. So if it obviously gets a low rating, it's probably a scam website. And if it gets a high rating, you're pretty safe. If you still ultimately have doubts, then just don't go down that route of using that website. Never rush into a decision. One that, that nearly caught me was the classic courier fee scam. I got a text message. I was expecting a parcel and it, it said there was an issue with the payment and I had to pay something like £1.29. Your kind of initial reaction is, well, I'm expecting the parcel. £1.29 obviously doesn't sound like a lot of money. So I clicked on, on the link from this text message. It took me to a, what was supposed to be a Royal Mail website, but I immediately was suspicious by the nature of this Royal Mail website and the list of information. It was seeking information from you. So I then put into Google carry scams and it, was, it came up that this was the end for me. So I think the key thing about that is obviously if you do have some slight suspicions, then wait, explore, you know, look online, look at websites like Action Fraud that often have some of the latest scams. Certainly, if in doubt, never go ahead with giving away any information or making a payment. Ultimately, if it's a real courier or it's a real bank contacting you, then, you know, they will eventually get hold of you if they really need to talk to you. Real organisations don't rush you. A lot of scammers impersonate the police and banking security departments and, and put pressure on, on you that way. Again, obviously, if those organisations are, are contacting you, they are organisations that in your own documentation, not the documentation they send you, you will have their phone numbers. And so if it is a, you know, someone claiming to be from the police talking to you, get their details, hang up and then call them. You know, and sometimes they, if it's a landline, there are ways for them to, to stay on the line. Phone on your mobile phone or another phone to the police and seek to verify that person's details. And obviously if they're a legitimate person, then that, that will be possible. Same with the bank. So I think these kinds of things are, are what you can do to prevent victimisation. If you've been a victim of fraud, Mark advises contacting the organisation Action Fraud for advice. You can find their details in the show notes to this episode. They can use that information for intelligence and disruption, etc. So it is very important to report. When you do report, depending on the nature of your victimisation, they will obviously give you the appropriate advice. And, you know, in some situations, it might be necessary to contact your bank and cancel your cards and change your details, those types of things. In, in other situations, it might be necessary to get your credit reference checked, particularly if someone has taken out credit in your name without your, your knowledge. Obviously, some people suffer quite traumatic experiences as a result. Lots of trust, anxiety, you know, particularly if they've, they've lost money. And sometimes even if they get their money back, they have a period where they don't know if they're going to get their money back. And that can be very traumatic. 
there are services through victim support and other organisations which can help you through that experience. Mark's next phase of research will be to look at emerging concerns around deep fake technology. The technology that can take a person's likeness and manipulate it into a new context. We've probably all seen some of the fun deep fakes, you know, on social media where celebrities and politicians are turned into comedy using that kind of technology. But we're already seeing fraudsters using that technology. There was a recent case where a chief executive of a, of a company was created in deep fake technology so that his voice sounded perfectly the same when, when the fraudster used his technology to talk to the finance director, asking him to transfer large sums of money for an urgent project. I can see the future where close friends and family, people from official agencies are impersonated using this kind of technology to trick you into parting with money. Friends in distress type scams are quite common, but imagine if you're talking to someone that actually looks like your friend and, you know, they you know, urgently need some money. Impersonation is a central tactic of fraudsters and these kinds of technologies are going to be much more easily available in the future, if not now. Um, I think, obviously, you've got the 3D printing revolution that's going on, which enables all kinds of things to be produced. We've seen the fronts of, of cash machines created, which can then enable the forces to copy your cards and your, you know, record your PIN number. More of that kind of 3D printing technology will be used for negative purposes once you get hold of those kinds of things. One interesting thing, I think, is like robotics and artificial intelligence and, you know, how long before we get some kind of digital entity that is created to conduct frauds, to think up and pursue frauds and, and, and do the frauds' work. And then you've got interesting things of who is actually responsible then. I mean, clearly for me, someone who creates an entity to engage in criminal activity is implicated, but, you know, do our laws cover that? But if the idea of future tech being used for crime sends chills down your spine, the counterside is how crime prevention can also invest in these resources. Every technological revolution is followed by obviously both good things, but also bad things. And the anti-fraud world has invested a lot in artificial intelligence, in big data to, you know, detect and catch fraud. While he urges for increased investment in counter-fraud measures and policing, Mark says that we can all protect ourselves as individuals by educating each other, talking with our community, and never rushing into decisions where sharing our personal data is involved. A little investigation using the right resources can go a long way to protecting us against the growing problem of fraud. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to the website port.ac.uk slash research. We'll be back again soon with more amazing insights. And you can also get news of the latest developments here at the university direct to your inbox. Just subscribe at port.ac.uk slash solve. Catch you next time.